can benefit from our time together and by the things that I've prepared to present to you this morning. Our lesson this morning comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. And I'm not going to reread that, but I do want to back up and read what happened before that to sort of set the table for what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, So let's go ahead and do that. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. Jesus feeds the 5,000. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. Imagine that. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them and all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand. Miracle of miracles. I think sometimes when we read accounts like this and the account that we're going to consider this morning, sometimes our familiarity with that, it's almost just like words on paper, and we don't truly appreciate the magnitude of what took place and our senses become dull to the reality of what actually took place here. But notice in our text this morning in verse 45, this great miracle had just taken place. And then he says, immediately, immediately after the miracle of feeding of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus makes the disciples get into the boat to head across the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida while he dismisses the crowd. The Greek word there indicates that Jesus forced them into the boat with some urgency. I would suggest to you, and we don't really readily gather it from Mark's text of this, but they didn't want to leave. Here this miracle had just been performed. They had participated in that miracle and they were enjoying the aftergrow with the crowd. Can you imagine the buzz that was going on? 
Now, Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus made the disciples leave so urgently, but I think we get some insight from John's account. Mark's account leaves out some things, and we're going to talk about that. And John 6.14 says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, that is the feeding of the 5,000, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That gives us a little more insight as to why he did what he did. You see, Galilee was known for its nationalistic fervor. Nationalism today, that's a bad word. If you're a nationalist, you're a racist and a misogynist and you don't care about the rest of the world and there's sort of a stigma that goes along with being called a nationalist. Galilee, they were very nationalistic. The nation of Israel was very nationalistic. And there was fervor and this crowd was ready to turn this gathering into the Messianic National Convention. And they were going to nominate Jesus as their king. They wanted to have a Make Israel Great Again rally. And they weren't going to take no for an answer. And you could picture them all wearing their red mega hats. And they were pumped. Jesus knew that they were ready to try and take him by force. And so Jesus dials down the fervor by evacuating the disciples who might have fueled the fire, and withdrawing himself to a mountain to pray. So once again, the disciples find themselves on the Sea of Galilee, and once again they encounter a crisis. But this crisis is different than the last one that we read about in Mark chapter 4. In Mark 4, they encounter a deadly storm that threatens to kill them, to drown them. But in this case, they're not really in danger. They're just not able to make any headway. A strong wind is against them, making it necessary for them to lower the sails and row with all their might. But for all their rowing, they aren't making much progress. Remember, they already are weary from days of nonstop ministry demands. In that text that we just read, it talks about how they didn't even have time to eat. Now surely, during the miracle bread, they were able to partake of some some food then, but clearly they were exhausted. Their schedule and everything that was going on surrounding the ministry, they were exhausted. And now they're at the point of complete physical exhaustion. Mark tells us that Jesus from the mountain could look out on the moonlit lake and see that they were making headway painfully. And so he comes to them somewhere on the fourth watch, which would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., walking on the water. And again, we hear this all the time, Jesus walked on water, and it's all, we're almost numb to it. But imagine it. Imagine witnessing that. Jesus walking on the water. 
And it's at this point that two questions, I think, are raised by Mark's account of this. One question is about something that he records, and the other question is about something that he leaves out. Why does verse 48 say that Jesus meant to pass by them? I'm glad John read from the English Standard Version, and that's the version I usually don't preach from the English Standard Version or teach from it, but there's times where you kind of compare translations and you compare the different renderings that are given. And the English Standard Version renders this the most accurate, in my view, based on the original Greek. Um, You'll notice in the New King James Version, in uh, verse 48, it says, Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed by them. That almost sounds like he didn't know where they were, couldn't see him, and he was just going to go right on by him. But the word there in the Greek means that he intended. It was a deliberate action. His plan was not to stop at the boat. And we're going to talk about that. His plan was to pass right by them. Why? And we're going to look at that. The phraseology there used by Mark is very significant. The the word pass by, and we'll look at that in a minute. And number two, why didn't Mark include the story of Peter stepping out of the boat? Originally, that's what I wanted to preach on this morning. It was going to be Peter walks on water and the lessons that we can learn from that. And certainly there are lessons that we can learn from that. But then I became uh, aware that this story, and I I was aware of it before, and there's certainly lessons we can get from Peter's water walk as well, but the story centers on Jesus, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. In the Greek, the wording in verse 48 is clear. Jesus meant to pass by them. That was his intention, but the question is why? Why would Jesus head to the struggling disciples and then just walk on by without helping them as if he didn't care about their plight. Remember the reason that he walked out to them in the first place is he saw that they were making headway painfully because the wind was against them. So what does it mean that he meant to pass by them? And Mark's wording of passing by them is very specific and unusual And to understand its deeper meaning, we need to look at this miracle through the lens of the Old Testament. And what we'll find is that there is much in this miracle that speaks to the deity of Christ. Speaking of God, Job chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at Job 9 verses 5 through 11. He says he moves mountains making reference to God, he moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion the Pleiades, and the constellations of the south. 
He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed. Miracles that cannot be counted. When He passes me, I cannot see Him. When He goes by, I cannot perceive Him. Two interesting things in this passage. God treads on the waves of the sea. And when He passes me, I cannot see Him. When He goes by, I cannot perceive Him. The disciples couldn't perceive that it was Jesus. They thought He was a ghost. But the idea of passing by has deep Old Testament roots in the glory of God. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 21, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, the Lord answers, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. In 1 Kings 19, when Elijah is hiding from Jezebel in a cave, the Lord appears to Elijah and says, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. Mark uses these specific words to show that this was an epiphany. A revealing of the deity of Christ. Jesus doesn't mean to pass by them so that He can beat them to the shore, but to show them His glory. They were meant to see Jesus treading on the waves and see His glory. But in their fear and lack of faith, they don't perceive it. They think He's a water spirit and cry out in fear. Jesus' response to their fear, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And that phrase, once again, is deliberate, I believe. And it is an echo of Old Testament reassurances from God. In Joshua 1.9, Be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. The The disciples didn't understand. They didn't perceive who Jesus was. Even after all that He had done, their minds were still dull. And that's why Mark says that they didn't understand about the loaves in that reading that John read for us. Didn't it sound strange when he said that? All that took place and they didn't understand about the loaves? He was tracing it back to before that. They didn't comprehend that well either. A miracle that was an echo of the Lord feeding the Israelites manna from heaven. Mark doesn't include this story of Peter because, and this is speculation on my part, uh, Some believe that Mark's gospel is the eyewitness account of Peter. And apparently, Peter didn't see his portion of this story as essential to be told. Now certainly, since the other gospels recorded it, 
it's an essential story to be told, but Mark didn't record it, I think, for some very specific reasons. But I think there's something to be learned from that. And I know people take that um, scene from Peter, and Peter gets kind of slammed a bit, uh, forgetting his eyes on the wind and waves and sinking. But to me, that story is an amazing story, that he even got out of the boat at all, that he walked on water, even if only for a few steps. But the hero of this story, the focus of this story, and the point isn't Peter. It's Jesus. People have preached and I have taught that we need to get out of the boat and take steps of faith. And there is great truth in that and times when that's exactly what we need to do. And that was what I initially wanted to preach on. And I was going to use some of the current events that are going on. And you can draw all the lessons from that. And I'll just give a mini-sermon on Peter here real quick. When you think of Peter and what got him out of the boat in the beginning, and you think of John's account of that, said, if that's you, Lord, tell me to come. So based on your word, I'm going to trust that I can do this. That was an amazing step of faith that he took to step out into the water because of his trust and confidence in Jesus. And there's great lessons in that. And then the lesson goes that he realized, became aware of his circumstances. It's one thing to be in the boat and say that, but then to step out on the water and see the waves and the wind, and you start noticing your surroundings and your circumstances, and then talks about him sinking. And let me ask you a question. Have you ever stepped in water and sunk slowly? It doesn't work like that, does it? You just go down. And I think there's something in that as well. Peter began to sink. Jesus wasn't just going to let him go down, even though Peter was becoming distracted by all his surroundings and sort of losing his focus and his faith on Jesus, he began to sink slowly. That's grace at work. Even though Peter was losing his focus, that's grace and that's patience. And, you know, I was going to use some lessons about social media and the 24-hour news cycle, and you think about our situations today with the pandemic and with uh, some of the uh, social civil injustices that that are going on today, and we become distracted by all the 24-hour news cycle. And you don't really even know. So much of the news that's being put out is so politically motivated. And there doesn't really seem to be any neutral news being provided. And so you sort of have to sift through and weigh through it. How do I get accurate information concerning this pandemic? Because in the beginning, it seemed like there was genuine interest in just getting the information out there. But now... It seems like so much of it is politically motivated. And there is different motivations for different people to put out different information. And you're like, well, surely I can go to the CDC and the WHO and get some good, accurate information from them. No. 
they have provided misinformation from the beginning. And we have found out, and I don't want to get political and everything. I'm just saying, throwing this out there. The leaders of those organizations have been exposed as being financially and politically motivated. And information has changed based on some of those influences. And so what are we to believe? How can you believe? So we got to sort through it all. And we got to make the best decisions that we can. And that's what we are all trying to do. And that's why we're patient with each other in the decisions that we're making. Don't get me wrong. I think it's important to be informed. But man, it's hard to be informed. And it's hard to get the right. And then social media throws fuel on all of it. And it's just like you don't even know what to believe. Those are peripheral distractions. In Christ, when we're focused on Him, we recognize and know. Newsflash, there's disease and death in the world. There always has been. I don't have to be afraid of it. I don't have to have some of the reactions that the world is having to these things. And then the way things are being portrayed with the racial divides and everything that's going on. And you see, and it just looks terrible, and then you go out in your everyday lives, and I don't know about you, but it seems to me to be pretty civil. And I don't see a lot of the things that are being portrayed in the media and on social media as being reality. I'm not saying they don't exist and they don't happen. I think they do. But the media portrays them as if this is the prevailing thing that's happening. Not in my experience. And, of course, you know, we can only see things from, from our view. But anyway, I said all those things to say this. Those are peripheral distractions. Those are circumstances that get our eyes off of Jesus, and we find ourselves in the same situation that Peter found himself on. When I'm trusting in the Lord and I'm focused on Him, I'm walking on water. I'm, di- I'm not distracted by all the peripheral, none of those things are going to shake my faith because I recalibrate on Christ and I keep my footing, not because of me and my strength and my power, but because of Him and He's where my focus is. Okay. But that's not the story that is central to the miracle Because the main point is Christ's glory. And Jesus' goal was to help the disciples get safely to their destination in the boat. Not to get all the disciples out of the boat and walking on water. Great lessons in that. But what was the goal here and what was the focus? And I believe that's why Mark records it in this manner. He sort of cuts to the chase as to what's the importance of this incident that happened. Before we consider how this passage applies to us, let's look quickly at two other points from this story. And the first point is that they didn't end up where they were headed. Jesus told them, if you'll remember, to go to Bethsaida, which is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. But they are blown off course by the wind and waves and end up in Gennesaret, which is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, the opposite side of where their destination was. 
The other thing to note is that there was a large crowd waiting for them, but they were only there to get things from Jesus. They brought their sick and laid them in the marketplace places and implored Jesus that they could just touch the fringe of his garment, much like the woman with the bleeding condition. And they were all healed. And that's all good things. And there were good things that came from that. But there was no spiritual hunger. No pursuit of Jesus for who Jesus was. Just for what Jesus could give them. In the Gospel of John, Jesus addresses this by telling them that they were seeking earthly bread to fill their earthly hunger but that they should work for the food that endures to eternal life. And then he says, I am the bread of life. This was a crowd focused on temporal blessings rather than eternal blessings. There is a lot of personal application in this. So how do we apply the truths that we see in this passage to our lives? And I'll just share... Uh, three application points, and there's various applications that can be made from these, and each one can make their own personal application, and you can see where we're going with this. And we're going to spend the most time on the first one. Jesus uses strong headwinds to teach us that we need him in the boat. The disciples were rowing and rowing and going nowhere. Remember that they were already weary from days of non-stop ministry without even, even having time to eat. And now here they are doing what Jesus told them to do, but they're completely exhausted and the wind is against them and they're not making any progress. Do you ever feel like that? You're rowing and rowing and seem to be going nowhere. You're working and working, but any progress that you make is slow and painful. And I'm not talking about good hard labor, good hard work, as if Jesus will make everything in life go easy. Hard work is a good thing and a part of a healthy life, and it's what God intended for us. But I'm talking about our discipleship, about our walk with God, about our progress in Christ in the labors that it seems, not seems, that he has called us to do. And when I say called us to do, I mean through his word. In our lives, there are times when it seems like we expend so much energy and make so little progress, and sometimes even lose ground. Jesus uses these strong headwinds to teach us that we need him in the boat. Like the disciples, we are learning our need for dependence on God. We are learning our daily need for faith in his power, not ours. There is a kind of weariness, exhaustion, and frustration in the labors of our life that come from doing it all on our own strength. We rely on our rowing, to move the boat forward. And eventually we need to learn that we can't do that. The question this asks our faith is, do we trust 
in our own work or do we trust God's work? It's kind of central to what Paul's trying to get across in Galatians as we work our way through that epistle. And this applies to everything in life. There are very few times when the Lord calls us to take radically supernatural steps out of the boat like Peter did. More often, he calls us to see our need for his strength and supernatural enabling through his word in our everyday ordinary things that we do, like taking a boat from one side of the lake to the other. We need Jesus in the boat of our parenting. We can feel like we put so much effort into it and wonder why progress sometimes is so painful. I've seen, and I think moms especially, can be tempted to discouragement and weariness. We can't do it apart from Jesus. There is a rest in working our part, but leaving the big stuff to God. No matter what we do, we can't save our kids. We can't control what they become or what happens in their lives. We can't change their hearts. Now, we can do all of the things that God instructs us to do as parents, but ultimately they have free wills. We think, well, you know, if you're doing everything, they, they, they're not going to go astray. Really? What about the prodigal son? Who's the father that is represented in that story? It's God, isn't it? Did he still have a son that rebelled and went his own way? Yeah. Are we going to criticize God's parenting in this? And that's the thing. Sometimes I think as parents, we think we need to do those things. And we realize we can't and we grow weary. We get discouraged. We become fearful. And, you know, in, in this day and age, there's so many things. And I know nothing is new under the sun. And we do have, we, we tend to say we have a unique, we live under unique circumstances. Things seem to be magnified now because of social media. I have a t-shirt that says social media destroys everything. And I believe that. I believe it's at the root of a lot. Not to say that there's not a lot of good that comes from it too, but um, I think that's a root of a lot of these issues. But, but yeah, you can become discouraged when you look at those things and the influences that are out there and uh, how everything is sort of magnified because of that. And so we need Jesus in the boat of our parenting. And we need to keep our eyes on his word and recognize what we can control and what we can't control. We need Jesus in the boat of our business, whatever that might be. Whatever your profession is, whatever you do to make a living. And I've met people that have businesses that I've personally been in business with. And invariably, choices will come along that test whether they trust in God or trust in themselves to move the business forward. If you're tempted to do something unethical because you, can't, because you think you can't afford not to, 
you're trusting your rowing, not the Lord. If you think you have to constantly work long hours, can't turn off the cell phone, can't leave the office, or it's all going to fall apart without you, you're trusting your rowing, not the Lord. There is a rest that comes from faith, not in activity, not lack of hard work, I'm not saying that, but a rest from striving and thinking, and this is the key, thinking that it all depends on me. And that's where we get off, because sometimes we do think that way. We, we work as if it does all depend on me. All married couples at some point know what it is to encounter headwinds that seem to be against your marriage, arguments, conflicts, drifting hearts, stubbornness, nagging, manipulating, controlling, bitterness, failure to communicate. All these things can make it seem like you're both rowing with all of your strength, but in opposite directions. It does take effort to cultivate a good marriage, but it takes more than effort. We need Jesus in the boat of our marriages. We need help from the Lord, and we need to give our marriages to God, especially where we can't change things and pray for God to bring the changes needed. And generally when you think of that, well, I'm going to pray for my spouse, my spouse's heart to change. We need to pray for our own hearts to change. And second point, where we end up may not be where we were headed. The wind and waves knocked them off course and they ended up on the wrong side of the lake. And here's a theological question. Jesus told them to go to Bethsaida. And when he joined them, they were immediately at the shore. But it wasn't the shore that he told them to go to. Couldn't he have supernaturally transported them to the right shore? I mean, he's walking on water. He wanted them to go to Bethsaida. Why not direct the wind and go to originally where he told them to go? Have you ever thought about that? What was the point of that? And it wasn't the shore he told them to go to. But they got out and ministered where they were. The life of faith and following Jesus may take us in directions we don't expect. What's important is that the Lord is with us and that we serve Him wherever we go. And maybe you look around and think, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Trust the Lord and serve Him where you are. I think, uh, can the Gordillos relate to that? Did you expect um, five years ago that you'd be in Kansas City? <laughs> think about how, what brought, what course of events brought that to transpire. And I, I don't want to focus on this too much, but you think about a redheaded girl from Kansas City and a California boy meeting in Florida. 
and him chasing her here back to Kansas City, and they put down roots in Kansas City, and then some other Gordios come along, and all sort of ignited by this one little event, and Haley wasn't even going to go to Florida College. She, that wasn't even on her radar. But sort of last minute, she decided. Kind of the same thing with Cameron. And so she ended up going and meeting this California boy and were blessed with the Gordillos. And so you think, we don't know where we're going to end up. And sometimes we put a lot into thinking, well, maybe I'm supposed to be here. Or maybe I'm supposed to be there. Maybe you're just supposed to be where you're at and serve the Lord where you're at. Now that doesn't mean that you may not end up in other places where life takes you, but serve the Lord where you're at. And I think that's one of the points we can get from this. Their destination wasn't their original destination. That's not where, but did they minister where they were? Yeah, they did. And that's one of the lessons. And number three, come to Jesus for the eternal bread. We want to hunger for the eternal bread that Jesus gives us, not the temporal blessings. Thank God for the temporal, but seek the eternal. We can come to Jesus for needs such as jobs and health and homes and family, but ultimately, He came to give us eternal bread. And that is the best and lasting food for our souls. So how do we call Jesus into the boat? And listen, I'm, not, I'm purposely not getting real theological here. I'm not talking about whether Jesus is in our lives or not as Christians. If you're a Christian, Jesus resides in you through the person of the Holy Spirit, and He will never leave you or forsake you. We recognize that, and we've talked about the fact that that's not a locational idea, but that's a relational idea. As long as we abide in Him, as He has said, abide in me. That's, that's the essential part of it. And He will never forsake us. Now, can we forsake or abandon Him? Yeah, people do. There are examples in the New Testament of people doing that. But as long as you're walking with Him, He promises not to forsake you. Just like He would never abandon His twelve apostles. But to experience His active blessing, His strength, His grace, His peace, His guidance, to see His glory in our lives, we need to call upon Him. It's not automatic, and all believers don't live on the same level of experiencing His presence in their lives. We can. It's available to us. But sometimes we don't take advantage of that. We express our dependence on Jesus and our faith in Him by meditating on His Word and allowing His Word to speak to us, to feed us, to change us, and to challenge us. We demonstrate dependence on Jesus when we make prayer a daily part of our lives. Consider this. The disciples got a head start on Jesus 
and begin rowing in the early part of the evening. Jesus went by himself to pray on the mountain for hours. Who's going to get to the destination sooner? Well, that's a no-brainer. The disciples, they got a head start. They're out there rowing. Jesus is up on the mountain praying. Who's going to get there sooner? Well, obviously, the disciples. They're, they're headed to their destination. They're working for it. The disciples have all the advantage, seemingly. But they row and row and go nowhere. And then a prayer-filled Jesus joins them And they're there. We should realize that when we feel like we're too busy to pray, too much to do, too little time, that's when we need to stop and pray the most. And finally, exercise faith. Stop white-knuckling that thing and give it to God. I'm not saying don't work. Work. Row, but rest while you row by giving it to Jesus, inviting him into the boat and giving him the oars. He is in control, not you, not me. That takes faith. It takes seeing Jesus passing by by perceiving who he is by perceiving in faith who he really is and how much we can really trust him. And that's the lesson this morning. I think there's a lot that we can learn from Jesus' water walks and we can make a lot of application. And again, I'm not minimizing the account of Peter getting out. There's great lessons from that too. But don't forget who's the center of this and our focus to be on Jesus and His glory. And I hope this has been helpful to you. We want to offer the invitation at this time. If there is anybody here who needs to respond to the gospel invitation, we invite you while together we stand and while we sing.